Welcome to the Look It Up podcast. I'm Adam Emery, the host and creator. Have you ever wondered why we scare each other on Halloween? Or where the holiday came from and why we celebrate it? In this episode, we'll take a closer look at Halloween and those origins. Thanksgiving gets skipped over in stores and ads, but it's a pretty remarkable holiday with an interesting history that goes past the pilgrims and Native Americans. And then there's Christmas the holiday that gets more money spent on it than almost all the other holidays combined. I'll talk about where it came from, who is Santa Claus, and what does he have to do with baby Jesus and the nativity. If you enjoy this episode, let me know. You can find the Look It Up podcast on Twitter at podcast underscore look, or if you'd like to comment on Facebook, it's at facebook.com slash lookituppodcast. All the episodes and the research resources can be found on the website lookituppodcast.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe through your favorite podcast streaming service. You'll find it on almost all of them. Halloween brings stories of ghosts, ghouls, vampires, werewolves, witches, goblins, and headless horsemen. It's celebrated in Canada, America, Ireland, and other places. Even in England and Latin America, they celebrate versions of it. But why do we dress up and have parties and tell scary stories? Where does Halloween come from? And what is it that makes us spend an average of $47 per household on candy for just one day a year? Why do we give away candy to strangers anyway? On the night of October 31st, known as Halloween to some and All Hallows' Eve to others, Lots of people decorate their houses and yards, then dress up in costumes. Kids go from house to house, knocking on doors, trick-or-treating, as adults hand out the candy. Some troublemakers go around pulling pranks, breaking pumpkins, egging houses, throwing rolls of toilet paper over branches of trees. It's a night where we tell dark, scary stories. People light candles and pumpkins, and we laugh at fake blood and guts. Then we clean up and everything goes back to normal the next day. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Celts were a collection of tribes with origins in Central Europe that shared language, beliefs, traditions, and culture. They spread throughout Western Europe, including Britain, Ireland, France, and Spain. They're considered by many to be pagans, and the holidays they celebrated, pagan holidays. If you've seen the movie Coco, the original holiday that Halloween was based on might sound familiar to you. Their holiday spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, which is a Gaelic word pronounced Suin, was very similar to the present-day Mexican holiday named the Day of the Dead. It came at the halfway point between the light half of the year when the days were long and the dark half. For the Celts, this was their new year, and they celebrated with bonfires, costumes, and feasts. They welcomed in the harvest and celebrated the changing of the seasons. But the most important part of the holiday and where we see ties to the day we know is because this is the time of year when the boundary between this world and the next, the afterlife, was at its thinnest. On this night's, spirits could pass between both worlds. The Celts invited their ancestors home from the spirit world and they fed them and honored them. They had to be careful, though. Their ancestors weren't the only ones that could come back to the world of the living. Evil spirits could come through too. To avoid the spirits and their curses and harm, the Celts would wear costumes and masks so they wouldn't get bothered. They'd also have huge bonfires in the villages 
where they'd throw the bones of animals to ward off the spirits. Then they'd take the flames from these fires and bring them home to light their house fires with the sacred fire. The Celts were very spiritual and afraid of fairies and evil spirits coming and taking them or their loved ones away. So they would also leave gifts and offerings outside the villages and fields for them. They would dress as animals and monsters to trick the fairies. People would sit around the fires in safety and tell stories of the headless creatures riding flame-eyed horses. Anyone that saw these beasts would have bad luck and maybe be kidnapped or worse. But they would also tell stories of heroes, famous Celts that would make the trip to the other world and fight the evil creatures there, saving their relatives or loved ones. If you ask me, we could use more stories of the heroes of Halloween. The Celts and others celebrated their holiday for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. But then, as Christianity spread through the known world, the old sacred holidays started getting changed. They were a threat to the church, so the church tried to stop them. In the 7th century, Christianity was in a full-on battle with the so-called pagans, and many of their holidays were forcefully stopped. When they couldn't stop them, they would try to convert them or turn them into days celebrating Christian values. Pope Boniface moved the celebration of Sawin to May 13th and tried to turn it into a day of celebrating saints and martyrs. He couldn't change the seasons, though, and the people still celebrated the fire festivals of October and November. A hundred years or so later, Pope Gregory III moved the celebration back to November 1st, trying to turn the day of festivals and fire and spirits into a holy celebration of those that came before. Despite their best efforts, the fires remained and the stories, costumes, and songs continued. In the centuries to follow, October 31st became known as All Hallows' Eve and Halloween. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Irish brought the holiday with them to America as they fled Ireland and the potato famine. The Irish immigrants' holiday was adopted by the Americans, and the festival continued to be celebrated, and over time changed into what we know today. Our version has some of the original Sawin elements, but a lot of things have changed or been added. Things like witches carving pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns and trick-or-treating are all updated. During or before Sawin, some people would put on costumes, go door-to-door, -door, and sing songs to the dead. The singers and costume wearers would typically be paid in cakes, very similar to what we do with trick-or-treating. Troublemakers and hooligans on the holiday are nothing new. During Sawin, any mischief or tricks performed by people were blamed on fairies. So how did a pagan holiday gain such prominence in places where Christianity is the predominant religion, especially in America, where a country where many of the first settlers were religious extremists? I think it comes back to money. In the early 1900s, there were two holidays that were making the candy industry a ton of money, Christmas and Easter. Both drove candy sales and made for very happy store owners and candy makers. And the sugar led to cavities, which meant dentists saw a share later as well. Before Halloween became mainstream, in the U.S., the candy industry created their own holiday called Candy Day. A group of candy makers called the National Confectioners Association decided that the second Saturday of October would be known as Candy Day. How did you celebrate Candy Day? Well, I'm glad you asked. You could celebrate 
by sending giving people you really care about a box, a bag, or bucket of candy. In 1916, they made signs, paid for articles in newspapers. If you weren't giving candy, then you weren't a good person who showed goodwill, appreciation, and fellowship. They tried to convince everyone that it was a day about showing you were good. But really, it was to give confectioners another day to bolster their candy sales in the fall before Christmas. You can probably guess where I'm going with this. Trick-or-treating on Halloween wasn't tied directly to candy in the U.S. when the Irish immigrants brought over their custom. In fact, going door-to-door and begging for treats didn't start out as a very popular idea. Big surprise. By the 1950s, it was starting to become more and more popular, but people were more likely to give out fruits, nuts, coins, toys, and other gifts or trinkets than they were candy. Parties that were thrown on Halloween were mostly serving foods and fruits. Again, not candy. Over time, the tradition kept growing, and what people gave out continued to change. People started to give out more and more candy. And by the end of the 1970s, Candy Day had all but disappeared. But candy was the main thing handed out because, unlike baked goods and other items, it was easy to buy in bulk, and it was already pre-made and pre-packaged. Today, at least 158 million Americans annually participate in Halloween. 95% of them will purchase candy. Americans spend almost $7 billion on the holiday each year. That breaks down to around $2.5 billion on costumes, $2 billion on candy, $300-plus on pet costumes, and then the rest on decorations, cards, parties, and other things. $2 billion of candy is a lot of candy. 600 million pounds of it, in fact. To put into perspective, that's the weight of three aircraft carriers. The average American eats three and a half pounds of it over Halloween. Imagine sitting down and just eating three cups of sugar, because it's about the same thing, around 7,000 calories worth. It's so much candy that about a quarter of the candy bought in the U.S. each year is for Halloween. If you haven't bought your candy already yet this year, or you're thinking about next year, there are some tips I found that might help you. To get the most bang for your buck, you should shop at Walmart or a warehouse club, and that Skittles, followed by Snickers, M&Ms, and Hershey's are the cheapest to buy. Of course, more and more people are moving away from candy and thinking about healthier treats or going back to toys or non-food treats. People even use different colored pumpkins to tell strangers that they have safe snacks for kids with nut allergies, gluten allergies, etc. And don't forget to scan the label for GMOs and high-fructose corn syrup. Candy may not survive with the holiday much longer, because there's also scary stories in the news each year that the candy has been altered, or sick people do bad things to it. I could easily see with current healthier trends, and people not being trustworthy, Halloween may lose trick-or-treating as we know it, or it may go by the wayside. But outside of the costumes and the trick-or-treating, Halloween still remains popular for the scare factor. People go on haunted hayrides and visit haunted houses, as well as set up scary decorations year after year. What makes scary fun? Or at least, why do we enjoy it? It comes from our basic fight-or-flight response. You hear something that makes the hair on your neck stand up, or see something gruesome and your adrenaline kicks into overtime. That momentary panic or fear can be exciting, especially for people that are sensation-seeking. Most of the time we go about our normal lives without ever really experiencing anything 
that jolts us out of our routine. Sure, there's the occasional near collision on the road when someone cuts you off or doesn't see you, that pit in your stomach when you're walking down a dark street or taking out the garbage late at night, but Halloween is an opportunity to ratchet it up not just a notch, but a whole yard. There's a section of the brain, the frontal lobe, known as the thinking part of the brain, that also helps calm that fight or flight. That lobe helps you convince yourself you're okay, countering that sudden panic or fear when someone jumps out at you or you see an actor dressed as a ghost or zombie. Feeling the panic, but knowing you are safe, can make the adrenaline more enjoyable. The extreme emotion is weathered, and you are fine. It's always more fun to go to a haunted house with a friend or family member. Shared experiences build relationships and also help soothe the fight or flight. When you experience a dramatic event with someone else, whether it's a friend, family member, or even a complete stranger, that shared event gives you a bond. You came, you screamed, you conquered, and finally, you laughed about it afterward. It's part of why Hollywood has been so successful with Halloween movies. People go to see scary movies for the same reason they like haunted houses and scary parties. The science behind that thrill that keeps people coming back instead of just being terrified has to do with the chemical called dopamine in our brain. Dopamine impacts us in a couple of different ways. The effect we see from dopamine is a chemical high. Whether it's fear, praise, getting a reward, the dopamine release tells the brain that whatever just happened, it should get more of it. A lot of drugs like cocaine, nicotine, and heroin also cause huge boosts in dopamine, which can get people addicted. Some people can get that same addiction from the rush of feeling fear. You might have been heard what they tend to be called, thrill junkies. The older you get and the more you experience fear, the higher your tolerance for it. It's why as a kid when you tell a ghost story, you may have just as much trouble sleeping as the people you were telling. As an adult, you're much less impacted by it. If only delicious food worked the same way, the more you eat it, the less it impacts you. The dopamine, the decorations, candy, and getting to play dress-up will probably mean Halloween is here for a while. But unlike many other holidays, it's pretty easy to just skip it all and stay home and watch a good movie. A scary one if you prefer. Thanksgiving's origin has something in common with Halloween. It started as a harvest feast. Harvest feasts and festivals have been around as long as man has been growing and harvesting food. After all the hard work of planting, growing, watering, weeding, and finally harvesting, the hard work was done. People had a feast to celebrate. The fact that it's not just a money grab scheme by corporate America, the good food, quality time with family, and of course, football, those are all the things I love about Thanksgiving. Back in 1621, the Plymouth colonists and the Wampanoag Native Americans shared an autumn harvest feast that people are taught was the first American Thanksgiving. The actual American holiday didn't exist until 1863 when President Abraham Lincoln declared it one. Most Americans have learned of the first Thanksgiving in school. The story goes that in 1620, the Mayflower left Plymouth, England, on board were a bunch of religious freedom seekers that were trying to find a new home and a new life. They left England in September, and 66 days later, landed in America. They'd been sailing for the Hudson River, but 
ended up farther north near the tip of Cape Cod. A month later, they made their way to Massachusetts Bay, where the Pilgrims started a new Plymouth village. The truth is, they couldn't possibly have landed in America at a worse time of the year. It was the middle of the Northeast winter, and the Pilgrims were forced to live on their ship, suffering from exposure, diseases, and malnutrition. Of the 101 Mayflower passengers, only half survived the winter to move ashore and start the new village. When they did, they were greeted by an Abenaki Native American who spoke English. He later returned with the famous Squanto, who taught the pilgrims how to grow corn, gather sap from maple trees, catch river fish, and other survival methods. Squanto also helped the pilgrims create an alliance with the local Wampanoag tribe. The Plymouth residents and the Wampanoags maintained their alliance for about half a century and lived in near harmony close to each other. This might be the only place in the New World where the English colonists and the Native Americans managed to coexist for such a long period. Of course, all good things come to an end. After 50 years, the relationship between the Pilgrims and Wampanoag soured, and it ended in blood and death for both sides before the Wampanoag numbers were decimated. Before the bloodshed, though, and at the start of their long relationship, that first feast lasted three days. It may not have included pies, cakes, and other sweets, as the pilgrims had likely run out of sugar well before then, but it certainly included corn, which was turned into porridge. Fish, deer, fowl, there were probably plenty of wild turkey in the area, berries, mussels, and possibly lobster. The pilgrims would often later repeat similar feasts whenever there was an opportunity to thank God for helping them prepare for the harsh New England winters. Their second harvest feast was a couple years later in 1623, after a long drought ended that had threatened the year's harvest. While Lincoln was the first president to declare an actual national holiday of Thanksgiving, other presidents did designate days of Thanksgiving. George Washington designated one in 1789. He asked Americans to show thanks for the end of the war. John Adams and James Madison also had days of Thanksgiving during their presidencies. Lincoln's Thanksgiving was celebrated the last Thursday of November. Later, it was changed to the fourth Thursday of November to allow for more shopping time after the holiday before Christmas. It's safe to say that Thanksgiving today is very different from the Thanksgiving everyone thinks of between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags. I mentioned before, while that one might be recognized by some to be the first, harvest festivals have been around for as long as there have been harvests. There were harvest feasts and festivals in America well before the colonists ever made it over, and they had been celebrated all through Europe, Asia, Africa, and everywhere else people grew crops. Since our grocery stores are well-stocked all year round, and very few of us rely on stores of food harvested from our crops to make it through the winter, it's no longer really a harvest festival. Instead, it has become a time to reflect and be thankful for our friends and families, which leads to the dark side of Thanksgiving. Turkeys have become the main staple of the Thanksgiving meal. It's estimated that 46 million turkeys are killed each year for the holiday. Because it's big business, companies that produce turkeys have worked to make it as efficient and profitable as possible. There are plenty of stories about how the turkey industry has found ways that most people would find questionable to produce more turkeys. You may not want to hear it, but most turkeys that we find in the grocery store live in a 2.5 to 4 square foot space their entire life. 
they have been selectively bred to grow rapidly, and some factory farms cut off their beaks and toes to prevent them from damaging or hurt one another. I was surprised to learn that domesticated turkeys can't naturally reproduce. Male turkey breasts are so large, which of course makes sense, since that's the best part of the bird to eat, they can't mount female turkeys, so artificial insemination is the only way to breed industry turkeys. After taking 28 days to hatch from their eggs, they get to full size within three to four months, that full size being three times larger than wild turkeys. Of all the factory farmed animals, it's a pretty safe bet that turkeys and chickens go through the worst conditions from sheer volume born, raised, killed, sold, and consumed. Turkeys aren't the only source of income for Thanksgiving. Pumpkin pie is right up there with them in terms of how tied they are to the holiday. There are 1.5 billion pounds of pumpkin grown every year. 80% of that is available in October. Another well-known fact is that pumpkin and squash are the same genus, and often squash is used instead or with pumpkin for pumpkin puree that you buy in the store. That means your pumpkin pie is really a pumpkin squash pie. And football? Less than 20 years after President Lincoln declared the November holiday, colleges were playing a version of football on Thanksgiving Day. High schools as well have throughout history also played the game on Thanksgiving. The NFL was founded in 1920, and it wasn't long before the professional league held a host of games on the holiday. In 1934, the Detroit Lions owner George A. Richards set up a holiday game. He also happened to own a radio station. He used his contacts in the industry to have that first game broadcast on almost 100 stations nationwide. From then on, the Lions have played on the holiday. The Cowboys joined them in Thanksgiving Day in 1966. It has become a national fixture ever since, because people are at home, and football is football. Thanksgiving definitely isn't the biggest retail holiday. It seems that stores start selling Halloween stuff by August, Christmas stuff by September, and you never really see Thanksgiving decorations or items on sale outside of the grocery store. But there's always the Macy's Day Parade, a reminder that Christmas is just around the corner, and of course designed to get you out after the Thanksgiving turkey nap to hit those Black Friday sales. Black Friday sales have begun starting the week of Thanksgiving, culminating in one big extravaganza the day after Thanksgiving. I was surprised to find Black Friday in Australia last year when I was there for Thanksgiving. They don't celebrate American Thanksgiving, and there were no references to our holiday being the reason for Black Friday sales. But every store had signs, and there were ads on TV and the radio, making it as big a deal there as it is here in the United States. A lot of retail numbers and facts about Christmas group in the winter holidays, which include Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and New Year's. I'm going to try to focus on just Christmas in this episode because that's the one that people are constantly focused on with the rhetoric about the war on Christmas, and it's the most pervasive of the winter holidays from music to decorations to marketing. The start of winter, also known as the winter solstice, has been celebrated throughout history. People around the world celebrated the end of the days getting shorter and welcomed the sun's return. In the north, where winters were harsh and unforgiving, people would also prepare for the winter ahead by slaughtering cattle and animals that weren't being kept for the next year. 
After the autumn harvest and the snows start falling, the food stores had to be carefully rationed. Any food that went to cattle was food that wasn't going to people. So any extra animals beyond what was needed for the next year would be killed, and either the meat would be cooked or preserved for the winter ahead. This is also the time of year when the summer's harvest wine and beer would have finally fermented and was ready for drinking. With all the fresh meat and the beer and wine ready, it's not hard to see why there might have been some parties. In Europe, further south, just because the snow wasn't coming didn't mean they couldn't throw a party. Early Romans threw a month-long party called Saturnalia. It was a holiday in honor of the Saturn, the god of agriculture. It was basically a month where things got crazy and people were a bit wild. During the first week of Saturnalia on December 25th, the rich celebrated the birthday of Mithra, the god of the unconquerable sun. For some, this was the most sacred day of the year. Early Christians didn't leave us a record of them celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's unlikely they did. Pagans celebrated births, Christians focused instead on deaths. For centuries, Easter was the main holiday. But in the 4th century church, officials decided that the birth of Jesus should be a holiday as well. Since the Bible doesn't actually give the date of Jesus' birth, Pope Julius I chose December 25th. While there isn't supporting evidence of why December 25th was chosen, the common belief is that the church chose this date because of the pagan festivals around the solstice. Choosing this date made it easy to take over the pagan and non-Christian celebrations of the solstice, but it also meant that Christians had little control over how the holiday was celebrated. You could call the day Christmas, but if the tradition was to kill animals, have a feast, and get drunk, it wasn't really fitting with Christian ideals. For over a thousand years, Christmas spread throughout the globe, and people started to recognize the holiday. But it was usually a day of drunken revelry, with poor people being celebrated and lifted up, and rich atoning for their perceived sins by entertaining the less fortunate. Eventually, in the early 17th century, religious reforms started to change the way Christmas was celebrated. When the Puritans came to power in England in the mid-1600s, they wanted to end the raucous celebrations and the decadence of the holiday. They went so far as to try to cancel Christmas. But that didn't last long. Those same pilgrims that I talked about before Thanksgiving were Puritans that didn't want anything to do with Christmas. In early Boston, between 1659 and 1681, Christmas was outlawed. Anyone celebrating was fined. In other parts of the colonies, it was still celebrated, though after the Revolution, the New Americans tried to distance themselves from English customs and traditions, which included Christmas. It took almost a hundred years after the signing of the Declaration for Christmas to be declared a federal holiday. This happened in June of 1870 under Ulysses S. Grant. Class disparity resulted in frequent riots during the Christmas season in the early 1800s. It was quickly realized that things had to change and the holiday had to be reimagined. A couple of authors, Washington Irving and Charles Dickens, helped craft the narrative of what Christmas was to become. Their rework of the holiday focused on charity and goodwill for everyone. With this change, Christmas gave families a day to focus on their children, a day to heap attention and gifts on them, without it seeming like they were being spoiled. The new Christmas in America saw new traditions created around the holiday. Traditions were created around cutting down and decorating trees, sending holiday cards, singing carols, and giving gifts. 30 to 35 million real Christmas trees are sold each year in the U.S. 
The trees are usually grown for about 15 years before being cut and sold. As the obsession with trees show, the focus shifted quite drastically from a Mardi Gras atmosphere of feasting and getting drunk to decorating advent wreaths and calendars, and candy and gift giving. And then there's Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a big reason for the half trillion dollars spent around Christmas annually. The historical figure St. Nicholas was born in what today is Turkey in the late 3rd century. His parents were wealthy, and when he was just a baby, they died and left him everything. St. Nicholas spent his life as a monk, and it is said that he traveled the countryside, helping the poor and the sick and giving away his inheritance. Over the years, these stories spread, and he became known as the protector of children and sailors. Before his death, he was exiled from Myra, modern-day Turkey, and put in prison by Emperor Diocletian. No one knows exactly what year St. Nicholas died, but the day of his death, December 6th, has become a day of feasting. In the 1770s, a New York newspaper reported that groups of Dutch families gathered to honor his death day. The name Santa Claus is thought to have come from St. Nicholas's Dutch name, Sinterklaas. The tradition of hanging stockings by the fire comes from a well-known story of St. Nick about a time when he dropped gold down the chimney of a poor man's house so that he could afford to marry off his daughters. The gold landed in a stocking that had been hung by the fire to dry, and that's how we get stockings hung by the chimney with care today. The appearance we all know and love came from the mid-1800s when stores were using Santa Claus to attract parents and kids to the holiday merchandise. Starting in the last decade of the 1800s, the Salvation Army started using Santa Claus suits to collect money for the free Christmas meals they provide to needy families, and they continue to do so today. When it comes to the story of Santa and his elves and his reindeer, many of the stories started from poems and short stories written in the 1800s, stories about the Christmas spirit meant to help us find the best in ourselves and drive us to help others. As a holiday, it has come a long way from the feasting and drinking 2,000 years ago. For those that believe in Santa Claus, they can take comfort in the fact that he represents the best of us. While we can't prove with certainty that he isn't up at the North Pole in a secret village making presents year-round, does it really matter if the belief helps us show a little more goodwill towards other humans? I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. As always, there's a bunch of links on the lookituppodcast.com website, including most of my sources for this episode. You can find and listen to my other episodes on the website, and you can leave feedback on what you thought of this episode. I enjoyed learning about the three holidays and hope you found some of the information interesting as well. If you think you know better, leave me a comment, and I'll share your thoughts in a future episode. I've also started posting the transcripts of these podcasts in the Look It Up Podcast Patreon site. If you visit the lookituppodcast.com website, you can click the Patreon button to take you there. All supporters have full access to the episode transcripts. Thanks for listening, and see you soon in another episode of Look It Up. <laughs>